Let's turn our attention now to God's Word. We are in Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can borrow one of ours. It's the blank book uh, from one of the chairs in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 737. Page 737. Daniel chapter 1. From the year 1722 till 1723, a 19-year-old Jonathan Edwards was completing his schooling and ministerial training, preparing for his life's work. And he decided to spend about a year deciding what kind of man he wanted to be. The result was 70 resolutions, 70 statements that he desired to be true of his life that he committed to reading at least once a week, every week for the rest of his life. The first of these resolutions gives you a glimpse into the kind of man he wanted to be. Edwards wrote this, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. Here was a young man who wanted to live a life faithful to God. More than anything else, he wanted to live for the glory of God because he knew this was not only his duty as one created and saved by God, but it would, re- it would be the thing that caused him to receive the most joy in life. He understood his purpose in life was to live for the glory of God. And if he lived faithfully to that calling, faithfully to his God, then he would receive the most benefit from it. Likewise, our passage today begins with a young man making a resolution for his life. It was a simple yet profound resolution about the man he wanted to be. Last week we saw how the people of Israel were sent into exile because of their continual unrepentant sin. They were taken from the land promised to them long ago, graciously given to them by God, to the pagan nation of Babylon because of their failure to keep the covenant relationship with they had with God they had with God undefiled and we saw that in the midst of these circumstances uh, that our text zeroing in on a group of young men Daniel and his friends and when you consider the circumstances in which they found themselves uh, cut off from all that they knew all that they loved from the safety and security of their family how easy it would have been for them just to want to survive for them just to want to hold on to the rope for dear life and hope to get through And yet that is not what they resolved to do. What they resolved to do was not just get by, not just to hold on to the rope, but to flourish in faithfulness to their God. That's what we want to see this morning. Uh, Our focus will be on verses 8 and following within the chapter, but to remind ourselves of the context, we want to begin reading at verse 3. Remember, Israel, Jerusalem especially, has been sacked. People from the royal court, Jews especially, have been taken. And now this is what we read about the king of Babylon. The king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who of your, of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. May God bless the reading of his word. This, sermon's, uh, this morning's sermon can be summarized in one word, faithfulness. Faithfulness. As we see first Daniel and his friends seeking to remain faithful to their God. That's the first part of faithfulness that we see. And so we call this the dis a display of faithfulness. The display of faithfulness. How did Daniel set the example for his friends pursuing a life that was faithful to God? Well, his life displayed at least three character characters characteristics. First, in his desire to be faithful, Daniel displayed a life of holiness. A life of holiness. The king had given them new names. He had relocated, relocated them to new homes. He had tried to indoctrinate them with a new worldview. And he promised they would eat new food from his own table. In many ways, this would have looked like a pretty sweet deal for the, some of these Israelites who were taken from everything they knew, literally destitute. They had nothing. They were completely dependent upon uh, those captors that had taken them from their home. And they thought, man, this is great. They're going to they're finish our schooling off. They're going to give us great food from the king's table. How can we refuse? But then here's Daniel in verse 8. In the midst of all this, we read, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel purposes in his heart to continue to live as an Israelite at heart. Even if some of the outward things have to change. Even if he has to answer by a different name. He will still be an Israelite at heart. Specifically, he will live a life of faithfulness. Not to the Babylonian gods, but to the one true God. Yahweh, the God of Israel. Daniel was concerned to pursue an undefiled life before God. A life of holiness. As we think about that, let's first think in terms of contrast. Think about how easy it is for even us to forget about this. Think about how easy it is for us to forget about living a life of faithfulness to God. It's so easy, especially when we are out of our routine, the routine of life, away from the people who know us, perhaps even in the midst of difficult circumstances, to forget any notion of living a holy life, of living a life that is undefiled before God. Perhaps it's young people off with their friends deciding not to follow along with the rules and the pattern of life that their parents have sought to guide them by and to instill in them. Perhaps it's us adults when we go on vacation. How many times are you away for the weekend and ever give a thought to seeking out a good church 
to fellowship with godly people, to hear the word of God proclaimed? How often do we just wake up late on Sunday and head straight for the beach or whatever attractions there are for us awaiting that day? Not thinking anything about pursuing holiness before God. Perhaps it's a group of pastors. They are not exempt from such temptations. Several years ago, I heard a very prominent ministry leader talk about a conference for youth ministers that they had put on in Florida. At the end of that conference, he went to the hotel manager and he asked if he could see in the block of rooms that were reserved for that conference of youth pastors, if he could see the incidental charges. He says, I don't want names, I don't want room numbers, I just want to see listed out the incidental charges that were listed there. Over half of those attending a youth minister's conference had paid for adult films in their rooms. It's so easy to forget about the calling we have on our lives to be holy. And yet here is Daniel as an example to us. Here is a young man who is determined to pursue a life of holiness with God. He had every reason to forget about Israel. He had every reason to forget about God. He had every reason to just say, you know, I'm just happy to be alive. And he said, forget all that. I am determined that I will live a life that is undefiled in this pagan land before my God. Now we have to ask the question, what does food have to do with all this? Specifically, it's tied there to his resolve to be undefiled, isn't it? Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, some have said this has to do with the food laws given to Israel. And that might work for some of the meat that he ate. Surely the Babylonians would have eaten pork, among things that the Jews would not have eaten. But the, the problem is, first of all, there's no regulation against wine. The Jews never told you have to abstain from wine, so why would that be such a big deal? Furthermore, it seems that his abstention was only temporary. You get to chapter 10, it's pretty clear he's eating the Babylonian food. So what's going on? Did he, just, did he break in his resolve? Or does this not have anything to do with the food laws? I don't think it has anything to do with the food laws. Uh, others have suggested that the food would have been offered to the idols, and thus Daniel believed defiled, and therefore he wouldn't eat. But again, this fails considering, uh, you know, in chapter 10, it's pretty clear he's eating this food. So that probably doesn't work. Furthermore, uh, why would the vegetables be undefiled? We know the Babylonians didn't just offer meat. In fact, everything that went to the king's table was first laid out before the gods. And then whatever was left over from what they ate, the king ate. So think about that in your mind. Here are these Babylonian gods, idols of stone and wood. And they lay out all this food before them. You can be rest assured no Babylonian king went hungry. Okay? Uh, the, all the food that was sent there on those platters arrived at his table, including the vegetables. And yet David didn't seem, or Daniel didn't seem to have any problem with that. So probably didn't have anything to do with being defiled by the idol. Some believe this was health reasons. But the truth is following a vegetarian diet for health reasons is very much a modern idea. Nobody in the ancient world uh, ever held this idea that we could ever find in the literature. And apparently God didn't believe in it because he actually commands the Israelites to eat meat on certain occasions. So what's going on here? Well, Daniel, I think, would have defiled himself in that it would have marked his full assimilation into the Babylonian court. Furthermore, that assimilation would have been seen in his dependence upon the king and upon the gods of Babylon. Remember, the whole point of this three-year training 
is that they are going to bring in all of these uh, young guys from Israel, all of the people that would have been in the royal family, the prominent leaders, and they essentially want to eradicate any trace of their Jewishness. They want them to, to, to come out of that three years forgetting about their previous life in Israel, thinking of themselves as Babylonians in every way. But what Daniel and his friends want to do is to force themselves to remember their Jewish identity. More than their ethnicity, they want to remember their spiritual heritage. They want it to force themselves to remember that it was God himself to whom they owed everything even their lives in Babylon. It wasn't the blessing of the king they desired, but the blessing of God. If they survived and thrived, not just over these ten days, not just over the total three years, but through their life of exile in Babylon, it would not be because of any human king. It would not be because of any false god made from stone or wood. It would instead be because of the hand of blessing of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God. And that is what they want to resolve in their minds. I say in their minds because who knows about this? Nobody. They asked the chief of the eunuchs and they asked the stewards and that's it. That's it. This is not political insurrection. This is not them thumbing their nose at the Babylonians. This is them saying, this is for us. We are going to abstain from that which we could have for the purposes of focusing ourselves on God and completely laying ourselves out, trusting and depending upon him. In the midst of this, we see not just a life of holiness, but a life of wisdom. A life of wisdom. Some of you are taking uh, the class on the book of Proverbs right now with Pastor Richard, and I want to encourage you, listen carefully not just to what you're taught and see in that book, but listen carefully to the book of Proverbs, even as you listen carefully to the book of Daniel, and draw the threads together in your mind between these two books. Because Daniel is an example of the wise man, of wisdom par excellence. For all intents and purposes, he is wisdom in the flesh. He stands in the company of people like Joseph and Nehemiah, and in terms of wisdom, is only surpassed by Christ himself. Part of that is evidenced here in our text. Again, look at verse 8. He asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself with the food, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed your food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, um, I'm not going along with that plan. You're going you're gonna to wind up a scrawny runt, and I'm going to get the chop because of it, because I didn't enforce the king's edict, so no, I'm not going to do it. So what could Daniel have done? Well, he could have pouted, right? could have whimpered, could have cried, think about the plan B. Well, no. He's resolved he's not going to eat the food. Maybe that means at some point Daniel just starves himself. We don't know. But Daniel then goes to somebody else. He went to the top man, now he comes to the bottom man. He starts with the guy who's in charge of everything to the guy who's simply in charge of himself and his friends. Verse 11, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Now remember, biblically speaking, wisdom is living skillfully in God's world. And that is what Daniel does here. The chief of the eunuchs is too afraid. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm not willing to lose my life over you Israelite brats. So what does Daniel do? He just, he just switches gears. Same plan, different person. And what does he do? He, he alters 
he alters his approach, doesn't he? He says, look, let's, let's just not go for the full three years here. Let's do a trial run. Let's, I'm not going to ask you to commit to the whole team, but just for 10 days, test us. Test us for 10 days. Just give us the vegetables and the water. And if, if we're not just as fit as all the other guys eating from the king's food, then we'll have another conversation. But if we are just as fit, if our health has not suffered, if you're not going to get in trouble, then let us continue for three years. Daniel wisely inquires of this man. He displays a kind of finesse. Think about this guy, this steward. Here's a guy, he's not eating from the king's table. I mean, he's, he's, getting, he's getting, you know, whatever the, whatever the base pay of Babylon was, that's what he's getting. And so think about what's running through the steward's mind. Okay, so you just want the vegetables. I'm going to have meat and fixings left over. What's going to happen? That steward's going to eat well for at least 10 days, maybe three years. Daniel knew what he was doing, didn't he? In all this, we see a strong sense of humility. Wise people, truly wise people, not just people that have heads full of information, but people who are wise are always humble. Again, Daniel's resolved not to defile himself, but who does he share that with? Hardly anybody. Daniel does not stand up and make this big harangue about the whole thing. You know, he doesn't he doesn't come in, you know, waving a flag with the Star of David on it saying, you know, you're never take us alive, you know. He doesn't do anything like that. He just resolves in his heart first, him and God, I'm not going to allow myself to be defiled. And then he leads, he shares this with his friends and says, are you with me? They say yes. And who do they do? They don't just, they don't just yell it from the rooftops. They go to the individuals who are responsible for their food. He wasn't arrogant about it. He wasn't prideful about it. There was no overt act of civil disobedience. In the end, God, Daniel displays his faithfulness to God by relying on the wisdom of God to help him so that the glory of God might be, might be known through his life in the exile. And all this leads us to the last thing in his display of faithfulness, and that is a life of faith. A life of faith. And by faith there, I do not simply mean like we've already said, faithful, consistent, devoted. What I mean is he trusts God. He trusts God. For whatever reason, I don't know what it is. If we had to lay blame, I would say we should put the blame on PBS running old BBC programs. But um, for whatever reason, I am an Anglophile. That means I love all things British. Anglo, England, file, phileo, love, Anglophile. That's what the word means. I didn't make that up. You can Google it, Okay. Uh, but, um, you know, to the point where, you know, on, I, you know, I hate, to, I know there's some of you that are just going to think, you know, what is the matter with you? We've got the tigers and the lions, you know, I, I look for rugby on the, on, you know, on the PBS station on Saturdays, you know, uh, and, and I'll just be honest, you know, that's a manly sport, fellas. Uh, you know, a football, you've got, you know, 10 seconds of a hit and then, you know, three minutes of walking around the field, watch rugby. Nevertheless, uh, one of the things that I have I have really appreciated in recent years is this poster that came out that says "Keep calm and carry on." And I love that in part because number one, it's so British. 
I mean, picking up on the stereotype of the people that maintain a stiff upper lip, quietly maintaining normal lives, drinking tea, even as their capital city is bombed by the Nazis during the, the, the Blitz. Uh, but the interesting thing is, if you've not seen that, I've reproduced, uh, reproduced that poster in a very tiny form for you on the sermon note sheet. What's interesting about that poster is the crown at the top. And this gets into the history of where this thing came from. It was actually a kind of uh, good propaganda produced by the Ministry of Information in 1939 in Great Britain, leading uh, as they were just getting ready to start World War II. Uh, a series of posters were uh, approved by, uh, they were uh, devised by the government, approved by the Crown to be posted publicly throughout Great Britain as a means of encouraging and instilling confidence in the British people when what they knew was going to be impending disaster with a war. Um, was such a close neighbor. It, it was designed to bolster their confidence as they move forward. And the fact that the crown there appears at the top means that, that the king himself had approved this picture. It was a sign of authenticity and authorization of these posters. Now I understand all that historically, but when I look at that picture, when I, when I see that crown and I think of it through the eyes of a biblical worldview, I cannot help but be reminded, no matter, no matter how powerful or how confident the king of England might have been, there is a, there's a far more powerful, a far more confident king, an almighty king who sits on an eternal throne far above all other thrones. All earthly powers are subservient to his absolute sovereignty. And this is the God that Daniel trusted in. He is a God that he is a man that knew they went into Babylon not by accident, not because God was weak, but because they deserved it, and God sovereignly decreed that it should come to pass. This is the God that stood as the bedrock foundation of David's faith. What an example he is before us. So often of us crash under the slightest pressure, but not him. He doesn't panic when he's sent to exile. He doesn't despair when he's carried off into Babylon. In a real sense, he just keeps calm and carries on, not because he has faith in himself or any human power, but because he has faith in God. He has confidence in the Lord of Israel. He knows that whatever becomes of him, God is in control and God is still good. And before we move on to the next point, we need to understand one last thing. Consider this a footnote. A very long footnote, but a footnote in the sermon. We understand what kind of person Daniel was, not just in terms of his character, but in terms of his age. We speak about Daniel in these verses, and we, we aren't reading about some great statesman from Israel. We aren't reading about some great leader in the Israelite army. We're reading about a teenager. We're reading about a person who was taken from his home, perhaps at the age of 14 or 15 in this text. A 14-year-old. Think about that. And all of the, the, the insanity of being uh, attacked, uprooted, and taken to another country and told, you will now be a Babylonian. And a 14-year-old resolves in his heart, I'm not going to allow myself to be defiled. I will remain faithful to my God. Why do I bring this point out? First of all, as an encouragement to you, young people. Some of you are teenagers here. Some of you are tempted to to come and to sit through a service like this with your parents, to sit through a Bible study and think, one day, one day I'll get on to serious business in life. One day I'll really get serious about God and make my life count for something. And young people, I just want to say, look at Daniel. He had it far, far, far worse than you do. And yet he was totally serious about life. 
one of the one of the great one of the great dangers in this country in the midst of all of the legitimate and fun and things that we can we can pursue in terms of entertainment and, and relaxation without sin in this country is that we lose the edge of gravity knowing this life is not all that there is heaven and hell await every single person at the end of this life, you will stand before God one day and have to give an account for all that you did. Who wants to just be saved? How much more to stand before God and have him honored by the life you lived in this world? Young people, do not wait until you're in college. Do not wait until you're an adult. Do not wait until you're married and have a mortgage and kids and say, now it's time to get serious about God. Be serious about God now. Now. Parents, what about you? If a teenager can do it, what about you? Is it time to get serious about God? Is it time to be resolved, to be faithful to Him? Furthermore, how are you raising your kids? What, 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 what kind of intentions and expectations have you put on them? Have you raised the bar high, or are you just happy? Are you just happy that they're still in the house? You know, I'm not saying be, be mean to your kids. I'm not saying be a killjoy. I'm just saying by your own standard of life at the least, set the bar high for faithfulness to God. So Daniel and his friends tried to remain faithful to God. What was the result? What happened? How did God respond to their efforts? There's a second major thing that we see from our text, and that is the reward for faithfulness. The reward for faithfulness. Daniel's request has been denied by the chief of the eunuchs, so he has approached now the steward in charge of him and his friends. He's asked to be tested for 10 days. What was the response? Verse 14. So the steward listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. He goes along with the plan. What is the result? Verse 15. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king acquired in them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The Lord rewarded the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. What did that reward look like? First of all, it was a merciful reward. It was a merciful reward. Back in verses 8 and 9, you know, it looks like there's something going on here, and, and we're not getting it. The author, who I assume is Daniel, says Daniel received uh, mercy, or, uh, favor and compassion on the side of the chief of the eunuchs, and yet he denies the request. And even last night I was wrestling with that. I was like, wait a minute. Well, what's going on there? Well, the reality is, I mean, to think about it, that the eunuch could have just had him killed right there on the spot. The king has made a decree, and you're saying you don't want to go along with it. I don't have the patience to deal with you. You're done. You're done. Who needs four more Israelite mouths to feed? But he doesn't do that. He has mercy on them and simply says, no, I can't do that, and you better think twice about it because uh, our heads could be on the chopping block here, and it goes away. Furthermore, 
that mercy extends not just to the chief of the eunuchs himself, but to all who are under him, because the steward does go along with their plan. He agrees to go along with a 10-day test. Why? Because God was with them. He put it in the heart of that steward to go along with the test. He put a spirit of favor and compassion in their hearts towards these men because of Daniel's commitment to living faithful to his God. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. God didn't have to show these young men mercy. Despite their faithfulness, God did not have his arm twisted behind his back. He was not at the mercy of Daniel and his friends. He could, he, could, he could have allowed them to be killed on the way to Babylon. But if you read 1 Kings chapter 8, you see as the temple has been built, Solomon prays at the dedication of that temple. And one of the things that he looks forward to, knowing the covenant promises, knowing the blessings for faithfulness and the cursing for disobedience, he prays and he says, God, if, if this people fail before you at this temple... And they are carried off into exile. Be merciful to them, God. There's what he prays. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And if you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carry them captive that they may have compassion on them. 500 years later and God answers Solomon's prayer. He gives a merciful reward to Daniel's faithfulness. Secondly, he gives a supernatural reward. He gives a supernatural reward. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Again, the point here is not between healthy versus unhealthy. We hear fatter in flesh and we think overweight. That's not what you should think in the Hebrew mind. Fatter in flesh means muscle. Okay? It means they're on their way to being ripped. They're on their way to, you know, bump you up kind of guys, okay? That's what, that's what fatter in flesh is talking about here, okay? Um, not the stuff that they take out with a liposuction. And, and the reality is, in 10 days, if all you're eating is vegetables and water, you're not building muscle mass. I mean, you'd be half to eating pounds and pounds of beans. You need protein to build muscle. The point here is that this is not about whose diet is better. It's about God showing up and doing the miraculous, Again, the point is not about the food. The point is about whose God is greater. Is it the God of the Babylonians that the king worships, that his king's food, that the food has been offered to, or is it the God of Israel? And the answer is, it's the God of Israel. It's the same way when you know Gideon is getting ready to, to take on, getting ready to take on the opposing army who's occupied Israel, and God says, "No, no, you got too many people." It's like what? What are you talking about? It's like we're out there. No, no, you got too many people. Weed them out. Weed them out. Weed them out. You got 300 guys. You get several thousand. Okay, now we're ready to go. And you're thinking, you're thinking, okay, what, what is God thinking about? Is it some kind of commando strategy? No! Those could have been the worst warriors in the world. The point was, you don't need numbers. You need God. And if you have God on your side, nothing else matters. God shows up and supernaturally sustains and increases their, their physical appearance, their mental stamina. And reward to their faithfulness. God blesses the courageous faith of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Supernaturally coming down and being with them. But it doesn't stop there. He also gives them a generous reward. 
a generous reward. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In fact, such was the blessing of God on their life that at the end of the three years, King Nebuchadnezzar says that he, that, that he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And I love this line, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now that's one of those, again, those verses, we're just tempted just to blow over and say, okay, King Cyrus, maybe we'll read about him some other time. Who cares? Let's move on. Chapter 2. But hold your horses. It's a time marker, but it's more than that. When we know, based upon when they came under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and we know based upon the year of King Cyrus' reign over the people, we just do some very simple math, we do some subtraction, what do we find? Seventy years have passed. That puts Daniel at the youngest at 84. We're talking about 500 B.C. here, folks. Nobody lives to 84. Very few do. Again, it's just showing that God is generous with his blessing. For 70 years, Daniel didn't just survive in the exile. He thrived in the exile. He saw kings come and go, and yet Daniel remained. Not because of what he himself could do, but because of what God was doing in him and through him. God isn't just a good God. He's a generous God, always giving us far more than we could ever deserve. And frankly, that's exactly what Daniel wanted. He didn't want a generous blessing because he wanted power and prestige. He didn't want a generous blessing because he thought he deserved it. He wanted a generous blessing so that it would be clear there is only one God overall. Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel. He is the one who gets the glory. He is the one who gets the honor. He is the one who gets the prestige because he is the one who has done it. He is the one who has had the power to make these things happen. He is the one who has been merciful and compassionate towards sinners. He is the one who has been generous in offering his blessings. Daniel and his friends owed nothing to the Babylonians or their false gods. That's the point. That's the point. Now, if you're like me this morning, you've got to sit here and you've got to think, I'm not like Daniel. I may be pursuing faithfulness with all I've got. But I've not seen anything like Daniel seen in terms of blessing. What do we make of that? Some would tell us we're not faithful. We don't have faith. We don't trust God. And therefore, we will never receive the blessing he desires to give us. Can I just, can I just say, if you hear somebody say that, they're not speaking biblical truth. They are speaking the lie of the devil. Back to the garden itself, Satan tempted Adam and Eve by saying, God is withholding something that you deserve. There is something better for you, and God won't give it to you. Consider Job, who lost everything, his family, his wealth, even the health of his own body, all by the sovereign, permissive hand of God. Yet what do we read about Job? There was none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Therefore, the Bible tells us the most righteous man alive at the time, and God allows for his life to be brought down to nothing. He is a a pile covered in dust within the first few chapters. Didn't have anything to do with his faithfulness. Nothing at all. Consider... 
more recently, the Judsons, Adoniram and Anne Judson. They answer the, the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ by packing up and moving everything as newlyweds to become missionaries in Burma. They labored and they toiled and they suffered faithfully for 12 years to see how many converts? 18. 18 people got saved in 12 years. I put myself in the Judson's place. I would be lucky if I lasted two or three years. I would have been like, this has obviously been a big mistake. I'm not qualified. God doesn't want me here. Or maybe I could have despaired to the point of saying there is no God, and I would have been gone. But faithfully, for 12 years, they labored and they labored and they labored, and they were content and gave God the glory for what they saw, never knowing that it was, in fact, their labor that would explode a pathway open for dozens and dozens, eventually hundreds of new missionaries to be going onto the field in that area, and they would be reaping the harvest of the very hard tilling and plowing that the Judsons did. Consider, finally, the millions of martyred saints who, when faced with the choice between denying that Jesus is Lord or suffering torture and death, choose death without hesitation, and are never rescued from the hands of the persecutors. They remain faithful to the end in a way that most of us will never know. And yet God does not come down and rescue them. God does not bless them. He allows them to be beheaded, to be burned, to be beaten, to lose their life for his sake. What about them? Weren't they faithful? Loved ones, when you see a passage like this, and as we see it for the rest of the coming weeks in Daniel's life, you have got to place in your mind this, this truth of reality. Sometimes the fruit of our labor and faithfulness to God will never be enjoyed until the final day. We may labor faithfully in this life, righteous before God, but never see the blessing that Daniel had in this life. But on that day, on the day of Christ's return, when he comes to judge the living and, and the dead, God will show himself faithful to every promise he has made to us. And let me tell you, there is no reward, there is no blessing in this life that will be worth the blessing that comes on that day. Standing before him in the presence of millions of angels and the company of the saints from the beginning of time and hearing God look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servants, enter into the joy of your master that is what we live for regardless of the blessing in this life in the end what we see in this passage is not just a group of young people who were faithful to god when they had every reason not to be we also see a god who is faithful to his people even when they don't deserve it in Daniel, the royal descendant from the tribe of Judah, we see also another future descendant from the tribe of Judah. One of royal blood, even the blood of Daniel. One who endured an exile not for his own sin, but for ours. Like Daniel, he lived an entire life of testing, only more so being tempted and tried until the final gasping moments of his breath were gone as he hung on a cross in Jerusalem. Yet he remained faithful to God until the very end. This one is the new and better Daniel, Jesus himself, who died under God's wrath for our sins, that we might be forgiven and brought near to God. When we trust him as Savior, follow him as Lord, and seek to make him the treasure of our lives, God wipes away the consequences of our sin because they have been poured out on Christ. He brings us sinners who don't deserve it to himself and the joy and the blessings of knowing him.
same God who is faithful to raise Christ from the dead as the Lord of all things. It's the same God who is faithful to bless Daniel and preserve his life. And it's the same God who has made promises to save us if we turn to him. Therefore, because God is faithful, let us, let us be faithful to him. Heavenly Father, what an amazing privilege it is to stand before you. To see this amazing work that you've done in the life of your people so many so many years ago as they were in exile. How encouraging it is to see the example of Daniel and his friends. So young and yet so determined, so committed to honor you with their lives. Father, for many of us, they shame us. They shame us by their faithfulness when we consider our own unfaithfulness in the midst of very, very different times. A time of luxury and not testing. Father, may they be an example to us, but more than that, may, may their example point us and remind us to the one who was perfectly faithful, who never faltered in keeping your will, namely our Savior Jesus Christ. Father, for we know that when we are unfaithful, he continues to remain faithful. You continue to remain faithful to forgive sinners because of the shed blood of your Son. Father, may that embolden us and encourage us and allow ourselves not to pick ourselves up, but to continually reach up for your hand, filling you, raise us up by the grace of your spirit and the truths of the gospel that we might continue to again and again and again pursue a faithful life before you. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In response to the message this morning, I'd like us to stand and sing, Great is thy faithfulness. Lord unto me.